You're listening to GNU World Order Season 12, Episode 40, for October 1st, 2018. In this episode, I want to talk about some POSIX tips. I was about to say bash tips, but they're actually POSIX compliant shell tips. It's a really good little article I found online and figured I would share. I also want to take some feedback, listener feedback, which I have some of. So let's get started. Starting out with an email from DeepGeek. I've got a rather lengthy email exchange that I'm not 100% sure I was following at first, but then DeepGeek clarified his position and and now I do follow it. So I want to I'm not sure the best way to follow it all cuz it actually all in my misunderstanding I feel like that actually rendered some interesting stuff as well. So I'll read bits of of DeepGeek's original email. He says, I feel that it isn't about what the OS can do for you, because if it was, we would have won that battle. So he's talking about the popularity of of an operating system, and I was saying how popular web browsers are, and so he's kind of addressing that issue. He says, he, he continues to say, Therefore, I believe it is something else, something perhaps irrational. I think it is a matter of cool. C-O-O-L. And he says, uh, remember in high school certain bands were cool and certain bands weren't, and the normal folk never sat down. He didn't say folk. He said, and the normals never sat down and had a committee or made a list. I think it's like that. I remember listening to Alternative before it was called Alternative, and then he goes on and on. So what what he's saying here is that there there's, like in high school, you know, there's this there's this, there there are cool things in high school right and and it's not as if though the popular kids or the you know the normal people in high school ever got together sat down around a a table and and worked out okay here's what's popular here's what's not popular and so on it, it just it just all surfaced and it became popular so he says regarding web browsers sure the guys who invented it didn't see it as it being a universal interface but as it took off, the guys at Microsoft did. They called it the middleware threat. The most important browser now is an Android browser, as many people use that as their primary computer. It's a good point as well. So I think what he's getting at and what I, what I responded with was more or less that, that I think he was saying, or, or what I thought he was saying, is that popular tech equals the best marketed tech. And... Whether or not that that encapsulate what he is saying, there there is this 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 um, Illuminati factor, for lack of a better term. And yes, I'm using Illuminati uh, sarcastically, but you know, there's this there's that sort of thing that you can't quite put your finger on. And I, I I'm I'm I guess like many people, I'm forever searching for what that is. Um, and the example I gave him was volume knobs on TV sets. TV sets, if you if you remember, if you've ever seen photographs of them, old TV sets used to be well a lot bigger than they are now. First of all, but they they also happened to have knobs, physical knobs on the front of the TV set. And in order to change a channel, for instance, you would have to go, you'd stand up and you would turn this knob, and the knob had preset numbers of channels in them, you know, and I don't know how high it went, I, I don't really know, but I, I'm assuming, you know, some set number of channels that, that would reasonably represent the the TV signals you could pick up on your TV antenna, because that's how it was done for a very long time. There was no cable television, it was all just over-the-air TV signals. So that made sense. That 
that kind of stopped making sense after a while, because at some point, those knobs just couldn't contain all of the feasible channels out there. And it somehow got re reduced to, I think traditionally, uh, it was channel 3. You would put it on channel 3. I don't know why they chose 3. And maybe that was just the region I was in. But you put it on channel 3, and then you could... That would be... That would, that would tell your television screen to look somewhere else for a signal. So it wouldn't be looking at the antenna. It would be looking for like the auxiliary input or, or something, the coax input, whatever. And you could plug your uh, VCR into it or your DVD player or I guess probably a cable, you know, and then you could get TV on that, or you could get a signal on that screen from some other source, in other words. And again, I have no idea if it was, if it's three all over the, all over America, or if that was just in whatever region I was in at the time. I don't remember, I would have been a kid. But there's that, right? So that, that, that knob was there, and it disappeared, and it kind of had to go, because it stopped being useful. It was like, well, we, we got 24 channels on this knob, we can't fit any more on there, it's stupid, we have 256 stations out there. So they got rid of that, that's fine, that makes sense. But the, there was this other knob for volume, and if you turned it all the way one way, you'd have no sound, and if you turned it progressively clockwise, then you'd have sound at varying levels, or at a progressively incrementing uh, level. And it worked really well, you could really get precise uh, volume out of that, it was it was there when you needed it, it was always there, it was always accessible, and at some point, somewhere in the industry, someone decided, we don't need those knobs anymore, we're going to use analog push buttons, or no knob at all, no, no button at all, and we're just going to relegate it to the remote control. And the problem with that, of course, bemoaned by many people for many decades now, has been that if you can't find your remote, then you cannot adjust your TV. Or, or you can't adjust your TV as easily, or as quickly, whatever the case may be. And it was just one of those things where those knobs really made sense. They were actually really, really functional. They were fluid, they were fast, they were they were micro-adjustable, it was just, it was a great system, and why did the volume knob of all things go away? I understand the channel knob, but the volume knob just seemed, it, it really, it was superior technology. And you might think, well, yeah, but then you can't adjust it from far away. Well, yeah, you can. They, we, they solved that problem a long time ago. You can have a, a knob whose position is relative, but still have the remote control that uh, that adjusts the volume independently of the physical knob. So you can have both things. It's just why why switch to these push buttons, these digital push push buttons. So how did that decision get made? Is what I'm saying. Like that was a lot of history of television sets for for a very small question, which is how do those random weird decisions come about? And why do they take hold? I mean, I'm assuming that all the TV manufacturers didn't get together and say, hey, we should take all the knobs off of TVs, that would be really cool, and, and we'll just put buttons. Or similarly, and this I have a little bit more insight on, because I guess I, you know, I was, I was more aware of what was going on at the time, but, I mean, compared to TV, um, the, the laptops, right? So, uh, Apple came out with those stupid touchpads, on their laptops with no buttons. There were no buttons on their touchpads, and then you could get, like, all your fingers on the touchpad and do different things with the touchpad, and it was, I guess, supposed to be really cool because you could do so much with your fingers, and you could push the the touchpad, and you had no buttons. And I've, I can, I 
the moment I tried it, I thought this is the stupidest technology I've ever seen in my life. I mean, the multi-touch is okay. That's fine. Like three button or three fingers on the pad does one thing too. On the you know that's whatever. But but the lack of a button just seems completely stupid. Why is that? Why is that a thing? But it became super popular. Like you you it you're hard pressed nowadays to find a, a a laptop on the shelf with with the correct number of buttons on the on the touchpad. I mean, you can find high-end laptops that still have some sense left to them with actual buttons, but it 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 kind of it made its way into popular thinking of of touchpads or popular design of touchpads. Oh, we're not going to have buttons now. We're just going to have a big slab that you have to press down or or you don't press at all. It's just it senses your finger and it kind of knows whether that's a press or not. Tell uh, a phone, cell phones they used to have keyboards. Maybe they weren't big keyboards. Maybe they weren't great keyboards. There were some that were pretty good. They slid out from under the, under the cell phone main body and you could type on it. Others just kind of had them really tiny little keyboards at the bottom of the phone, whatever. For whatever reason, someone thought that was a stupid idea and got rid of the keyboards. And then everyone got rid of the keyboards. And I still don't understand the point of that. I have a cell phone for work and it it is like all the other phones out right now that there's no keyboard on there and so you know you're sitting there trying to read something on the screen or you're just holding it and you you've got basically no there's no space like every anywhere you put your hand is is activating some kind of touch response so you know no matter how you hold the thing something's happening and and all you actually are trying to do is hold the phone in your hand so you end up kind of cradling it in this weird sort of unnaturally sort of sacred way you you cradle it in your hand so that your fingers don't touch the front of the screen but you're still actually holding on to the screen so it doesn't tumble out of your uh, out of your hand it's just it's the most annoying thing but it became popular so what i'm trying to always get to i guess is how does that stuff get popular how does that happen how do people get swept away by these really stupid ideas and then get convinced that they are in fact just the only way to go like if it doesn't have that feature horrible though it may be then it's just not it's not worth owning now deep geek responded to me and says he says it's a little different what i'm saying is that normals or pinks or units whatever you want to call them aren't making tech decisions at all that instead they are doing some herding instinct that we call fashion. I don't think they can actually push a fashion. I think companies can hire people who know what is fashionable. So don't try to talk logically to these people. It's like talking to a dog about algebra. Just rest assured that someday a teenager will say to another, oh yeah, the iPhone. Everybody's dad liked the iPhone. So he's saying, in other words, everything in time will fall out of fashion, and that fashion, when it's when it's current is i guess he's saying it's just it's um it's inexplicable it's it's unobtainable it is uh it's just it's esoteric i mean and that's that is an argument um i'm not i i don't know if i maybe i'm being maybe i'm maybe i am looking for an illuminati kind of conspiracy source of all of this stuff that rises from from the 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 subconsciousness collective consciousness i guess of of people but i just i mean i figure the way i see it personally is that someone's got to make that call at some point but maybe that's just the structure of of things you know if if someone makes that call and that someone is up at the top of a company then that trickles down into the rest of the company and then it becomes a thing within that company i mean that's 
that's it. And people just have to, you know, initially people are paid to like that idea. They just think, or, or they don't even have to like it, but they're paid to implement it. And so it gets implemented and then it gets pushed out into the, into the culture. And if the culture says that is a thing that, that we believe is cool, then it becomes cool. I, I guess maybe that's what it is. I don't know. It's a complex issue and it's kind of annoying to me that it can't be solved uh, with, you know, within 10 minutes of podcasting, but I guess we can keep working at it. All of that was in response, I, I believe. I mean, he didn't exactly reference, like, the episode number and the topic or whatever, but I, I think that that was all in response to me saying that people are using the web browser as the big in universal uh, interface and and how I was th thinking that that, that was curious to me that that had made such an impact on computing on computerists of of the modern age that that became the thing that everyone could understand and and latch on to and and kind of and go with really and i was wondering why and i'm wondering what kind of hook we can use to to appeal to people in other ways and of course when i say we and appeal to people i'm not saying we as like the linux company because we're not a linux company we're just a bunch of people who happen to like open source i'm i'm saying we as in people who are active in the com in the computer community what can we do to make people's experience better but also enable them to go further than they expect because it is open source and i guess that's just an ongoing question for each of us really i mean that's what it boils down to at least at this stage but i do think there's value to that and it could be hopeful it could be wishful thinking you know the whole like one just one person can make a big difference that sort of thing i don't know if if I'm really saying that, but I mean, certainly when I'm doing things and I and I catch myself doing something, maybe maybe it's a bit much of a hack. It's it's a hack, but maybe it's a hack too far. Then sometimes I try to reel myself in and think, okay, well, I should really do this properly. Like it might take me longer to do it, but I'm going to do it properly, and that way I can post it online. And if someone else finds it, then hey, great, great for them. They've found something that's worthwhile. And if no one finds it, that's okay. At least. I've gone to the trouble of making something complete. Or when I find a bug in something, sometimes I, I, I just fix it for myself and move on. Other times I think, you know what, I should at least submit this thing. I should at least register this as, a, as something that caused me to stumble in this process. And sometimes it's pretty difficult to find the place to report it to, which, I mean, is a bug in itself, right? That project ought to make that more available. But I don't know, it's just, it's... It's always thinking about how the the quote-unquote customer really, really matters and that we're serving the quote-unquote customer and that the quote-unquote customer is each one of us. Now, isn't that a charming and capitalistic view of society? We're all each other's customers. Take it or leave it. Point being, as computerists, we're helping each other. We're serving each other in different ways. And I think the more that we can do to to actually improve each other's process or code or whatever it may be, then that's great. I think that's that's part of the process of building something better. Now, whether or not that's enough to, you know, topple the the institutions of evil software and evil technology, you know, I don't know. It's probably a, a that's it's probably not going to do it. But if you're looking for that one small thing that you can do each day to improve things, I, th I think that's worth worth thinking about. What can I do to do things correctly and make this an appealing way 
to get something done. I think that's, that's something to think about. The next bit of feedback I got was not actually feedback, it's uh, retroactive credit. I knew, and I think I even said in the episode about Lutris that I'd heard about it from someone on some social network, I, I think is what I said, or some someone somewhere, I don't know. But uh, it turns out the, the person that I heard it from is named Nige, N-I-G-E, or I don't know if that's his name, but that's the person's handle on Mastodon, or username, whatever you call it on Mastodon. It's their handle on Mastodon. And I, I, I knew that I'd heard of it from someone on Mastodon, but Mastodon doesn't have a great search feature, or at least not a, not a great easy search feature. I haven't quite figured it out. Like, if I, if I want to go to all of the posts that I've made on Mastodon and search for a string, how do I do that? I, I'm not sure. I, I have not figured that one out yet. I mean, I, I, I imagine I could download my history and then grep through the history, but I, I'm not that it's not I'm not going to do that for every time I, I find out something from someone on Mastodon and then, you know, it's, that's crazy. But um, Nige kindly said that it wasn't a big deal that I didn't give any credit for having heard about uh, Lutris from from Nige. But Nige did write a blog post about Lutris and um, how it works on Guild Wars 2, I think is what the game is. It's GW, yeah, Guild Wars 2, GW2. I don't know what Guild Wars 2 is. I'm assuming it's kind of like a, an MMO or something. I've never played it. Nige has. And, um, yeah, Nige has a pretty good, pretty good, um, pretty good little blog post on it. It's a, it's a quick one. It's not, it's not really a subjective blog. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's 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 how to get Lutris up and running and how to get Guild Wars working on it. So it's um yeah, it's a good little post possibly just to show what you have to do in order to get something to possibly work on Lutris. Which I mean that's not to say that Lutris I mean the important thing to to know about Lutris is and I, I feel like I did I did I tried to make this clear in my episode, but I might as well mention it again and that is that it's it isn't anything more than an aggregator it it is just a it's a library it is a thing to manage your library so it it doesn't do anything special really and and even its install scripts if you look at a couple of install scripts you'll get a feeling for just how simple they are they are they're really really it's it's almost like you shouldn't call them install scripts it's really just kind of it's a couple of variables for Lutris to reference when it displays what you have told it your library is. So you may, you know, you, and this confused me initially, and that's why I kind of want to bring it up again. You might open Lutris and, 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 and try to, you can add a game that already is installed on your hard drive, and that's pretty simple because all you're doing is pointing it at an executable and saying that's where the game is add it to my library and I'll give it a little icon and then we're good to go. And that's easy. And that's kind of a, it's almost a, a, a non-manual, you know, it's almost a, a wizard for making a .desktop file in, in a way, except that it's not a desktop, .desktop file, it's, it's a Lutris launcher icon. Now, if you open Lutris and then use it to quote-unquote install something, then you're not really using Lutris to install something. And I think that's where I kind of got really that when i was spending time with it really caused me to hesitate when i saw that it would install things cuz i 
I thought, well, how is it installing things? What is it installing? I don't understand. And and it would ask me for something like, show me the Humble Bundle archive that you downloaded or the GOG.com um, you know, zip file that you, or, or the zip file that you downloaded from GOG.com or whatever. So there would be these, you know, and you would point it to that and then something would happen in the background and you're not really sure what, and then in the end, maybe you have a working game. And what, what was happening, at least in, in many of those cases, was that it was circumventing the install scripts, which were usually very simple install scripts anyway, that consisted of unzip this code, you know, all this game package, unzip it into the place where the user said that their destination was. I mean, the, these installers are not rocket science by any means. It's usually, show me where you want you, you, me to put all your games, and you do that, and then it makes a subdirectory for the game, puts all the game files in it, maybe it generates a .desktop file and spits it out somewhere for you, maybe on your desktop, and that's it. So Lutris is really just leveraging installers that are already exist. And all that it actually does when you're saying, okay, install this game, in, in many, many cases, is it's it's launching a, an install process or, or circumventing an install process and just unarchiving something that already exists into the location that you have told it that you want things to go to. And then it's making a little YAML entry or a JSON, JSON entry, I, I forget which, uh, into its, its own configuration file so that when you launch Lutris in the future, then that game will always be there. And it will know where to find the corresponding executable and the, the little icon that you click to start it and so on. So Lutris is not anything magical, it's just something magically contained. And and that is, I think, for me, that's its biggest selling point, is that everything in, or not everything, but many things in Lutris, kind of, they, they get sandboxed, as it were, not, not from a security standpoint or anything, just from a convenience standpoint, they get... They all get placed in the dot .local dot .share dot, or dot .local slash share slash Lutris folder, or the dot .config slash Lutris folder, and and so everything kind of you, you keep everything self-contained. Not not your games, but but the stuff about Lutris itself all sort of happens within Lutris, and all the little emulators that you need to run certain games they get put into this Lutris place, and so it, it it's. it's it kind of it removes a lot of the the assembly from you, and that's kind of the feature of Lutris. And and I think that um, Nige's blog post about Guild Wars two kind of reinforces that meaning, that you might know that okay, well I need wine to run this Guild Wars game, and Guild Wars exists in my tilde slash games to make sure that the wine is the correct you know sixty four bit wine so that it will run this game that I got. And so you, you kind of need to know what you're dealing with. And then in some cases, you know, wine is kind of a, it, it's it's a big, vast thing that, you know, if a game might come out that, that you need an extra DLL file to run. So, and wine doesn't know that because wine's just emulating what it's emulating, or not emulating, it's, uh, wine is not an emulator. Um, wine has the DLL files that it's got, and that's what it's got. It's not like, you know, so if you download Guild Wars 2 and it ships with certain DLLs and Wine's got its DLLs, but there's yet another DLL out there that you need. There's nobody telling your combination of Wine and Guild Wars 2 that, hey, you need yet another third-party DLL in order for this other thing to run. You know, there's no there's no sense of, um, there's no management. There's, there's no package management there. And, um... And certainly, why would there be? I mean, Guild Wars 2 doesn't know that you're installing it on Linux, and Guild Wars 2 
expects, I guess, that if you're installing it on Windows, certain things exist. I don't, I don't really know how all that stuff works because I've never really used Windows, but it's a good blog post if you, if you want to get kind of a behind-the-scenes look at what you may have to do to get something running that's a little bit of an edge case. Read it up. Read, read this thing and see what you, what, what Nige had to do to get everything running because it is. I don't know, I like reading about this sort of thing, like the stuff that people have to go through in order to get something to, to work, whether it's an application, or a game, uh, or a programming, you know, an API, or, or a trick in programming, something that they figured out. I just like reading that sort of thing, so I'll put a link to that blog post in the show notes. And now it is time for coffee. Don't you agree? Thought you would. Okay, you've got coffee, I've got coffee, you've got a POSIX compliant shell, I've got a POSIX compliant shell. So there's this great blog post that I stumbled across, I think, <laughs> strangely, I think someone on Mastodon, oh yeah, Tomasino uh, on Mastodon posted it, and I I couldn't resist, because the name of the blog post was Insufficiently Known POSIX Shell Tricks, or, or Features, and I thought, well, that's great, because... Um, people should know more about their shell features. And these are POSIX compliant, so that means that it's, th these are not bashisms, these are not seashellisms, these not corn, cornisms, that a term? Um, these are just, if your shell is POSIX compliant, it can do these things. POSIX being, of course, the set of specifications that are, are or the set of standards, I guess we, you could even say, that define, well, anything that claims to be POSIX, really. And things that claim to be POSIX compliant uh, include, or mostly POSIX compliant, include Linux, BSD, Mac OS, and Windows, believe it or not. So, yeah, you've got something like, let's say you've got uh, source, SRC, all capitals. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but let's just say it is. Equals um, path to foo.c. So we've just set a variable, right? This is in a bash shell, for instance. So if I do an echo, dollar sign, source, then I get path to foo.c. Now, of course, that example in itself includes a bashism. So I'm going to switch over to tcsh. And I'm going to do this the uh, tcsh way. And I'm going to do uh, set source, set space, source, space, and then slash path to foo.c. Oh, no. Um... There we go. So now I've got set uh, space source equals slash path slash to slash foo dot c. And so then if I do an echo dollar sign src, I have path to c. So I've got both in bash and tcsh, that's how you would do it. It's just the difference is in tcsh, you have to do set space and then the variable equals the value. Uh, and in bash, you can just do variable name equals and then the value. Okay, so that wasn't that was that was obviously neither here nor there in relation to what we're talking about. But I just wanted to highlight that in the example in the blog, he uses he he uses a method of setting a variable that may or may not work on on a specific shell depending on what you're using. So, um, which I mean, I don't blame him. I, I wouldn't 
try to provide every single way of doing a thing in every single shell either. But then, so so the the point being is that we've got this this thing, right? We got path to, and then this this value foo.c. What if you also needed to reference path to foo.o? So in this example, he's got obj as an object. obj equals dollar sign brace src percent sign. That's the important part. Dot c and then close brace dot o. So now if I do an echo dollar sign obj, I've got path to foo dot o. So that's huge. It's it's huge because if you think about, I mean, I know that. Personally, I do this all the time because I'm, I'm very frequently converting from one thing to another, whether it's a, a an audio file down to something else, or whether it's a, a text file from one thing to another, or image files. It's just, I'm, I'm, it seems like I'm converting things all the time, and usually in bulk. It's usually not just a one-off thing. And even if it is a one-off thing, it can get quite tedious to try to figure out, well, how do I get just the extension part? of a file and you can do things like you know if we do like let's just do echo foo.c okay that obviously foo.c is echoed back okay so then if i if i pipe that to let's do a pipe it to rev okay so that reverses it c.oof okay that's good um so now let's do a pipe to foo.c pipe rev pipe cut dash field one delimited by a dot now i've got c okay so i've successfully chopped off just the extension so that's good so now what do i do well i don't know okay well what if we do base name foo.c i get foo.c um so what if i do i think there's a there's some kind of argument to base name where we can just get the suffix yeah so base name dash dash suffix equals dot c i think is what we can do then I forgot to provide the path to the thing that I wanted the base name of, and then I get foo.c. So that could work. So base name dash dash suffix dot c. So if I can get the c from one thing and then put that into the argument of the base name, then I can get just foo, and then I could append the desired suffix to that base. So that would be something like base name dash dash suffix equals and then I would do maybe a backtick, and I would do an echo, you know, foo.c or whatever it is, like whatever variable, and then pipe that to rev, and then pipe that to cut, dash f1, dash delta, or dash d, uh, quote, dot c, quote, or maybe just dot, uh, yeah, dot quote, and then close backtick, and then path to foo.c, and then all of that would have to be in something, and then I would append the desired suffix to it, so it would be dot, you know, oh. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare, right? I mean, I've just stepped through it for you, and it's a nightmare. This is much, much easier, being able to say, okay, here's a new variable equal to dollar sign brace src percent dot c dot o. Oh, and you might think, well, yeah, but we could just do, we could assume that we know the extension, and we could just do... Uh, obj equals dollar sign parentheses base name dollar sign source space dot c parentheses dot o that would work but that also strips the path base name doesn't preserve the whole path it, it is well it's the base name so it's a pretty handy tip and he kind of throws in another one in there but i think both of them kind of rely on some basic understanding of the dollar sign brace brace notation which you can read about on gnu.org slash software slash bash uh, slash manual 
And if you if you look around in there, there's a there's a, a section 3.5.3 about shell parameter expansion, and it differentiates between, or rather, it it clarifies what the what the braces are actually doing. Long story short, it's kind of an array. So in, for instance, if you've ever done anything in Python where you're looking at a string as an array of characters, it's kind of similar to that, although not necessarily. If you really want the details, go read this thing because it, it goes into details about it. But I think of it as, well, I actually think of it as in, in terms a little bit of, of like the Python example where, where instead of you know, if you, if you have something in uh, uh, this this string, like foo, then don't see it as a string. See it as an array of characters. So you have F-O-O, actually. And and in a way, the dollar sign brace brace kind of looks at it in the same way. So if you provide, for instance, if you do an echo dollar sign brace uh, source, I think was the original one, right? SRC close brace then you get the path to foo.c, which isn't a big deal, but let's say that we had um, var equals, and then I'll do quotes, uh, hello space world, close quote, and then I do echo dollar sign var, I get hello space world. Now, in some commands, that could be a problem because there's a space in there, and as you know, shell a shell sees a space, a raw space, as a separation. That, that means that, you know, that's how it de delineates a command from an argument, or a, a command from an option from an argument. So if you have an, if you have a space in your, in your argument, that can throw things off. And so if you put that within dollar sign brace, brace, so you do echo dollar sign brace of our close brace, then, I mean, it looks the same to you. It's still hello space world. But but the command that you are running that variable in, it won't see that space. It will just see, will see var, if that makes any sense. It might not make a whole lot of sense, but that's kind of one way to see it. But here's another way of seeing it, which is, well, the, the way that you've already seen it, which is the f source uh, um, percent sign dot c close brace dot o. So that percent did something, right? It, it did it did something to that to the to the variable to the stuff contained in that variable, and there are other things that you can do to variables. So if you do an echo space dollar sign brace src hash asterisk and then a slash like the, the same kind of slash that you would use to separate you know path slash to slash foo dot c, you do that and you get just uh, not slash path slash to slash foo dot c but just path slash to path foo.c. So it it took out the first field delineated by a slash. So if you do echo sort dollar sign brace source hash hash asterisk slash close bright brace, then you just get foo.c. So it's a short it's a shortened version of base name really is what that is. Hash hash asterisk slash. So that was kind of cool. So that was one tip from this person's blog. The next one was default variables for uh, default values for variables. And this one is a really handy one that I use all the time actually in Slack builds. So if I go up to my Slack build tree, if I can find it on this computer. Yep, user local Slack builds. And then I'll just go into any random one. So we can go into uh, maybe audio, aj-snapshot, and then I'll cat, no, I'll do a head-in33 
for AJ slash uh, dash snapshot dot slack build. So there are things like um, version equals dollar sign brace version colon dash. That's like a minus sign, a dash, 0.9.6, close brace. Now what that means is that the version, the, the variable called version, is set to 0.9.6 if no other value is provided. Here, here's another example, actually. Here's, this might even be better. Output equals dollar sign brace output colon dash slash temp, close brace. So if I wanted to, for instance, run a Slack build, but I wanted it to output to some other place than slash TMP, then I could just put out, I, I could, I could type output equals, I don't know, uh, slash, or how about slash home slash clatu slash code space, and then I could run the Slack build, like dot slash aj dash snapshot dot slack build. And that Slack build would then read the output variable not as slash TMP, but as whatever I entered as an argument in my immediate environment. So in other words, this, this notation of colon dash within the dollar sign uh, braces, that provides the default value of a variable if nothing else overrides it. Ah, uh, but wait, there's more, and this I didn't realize, or I've never really... I never knew this until this blog post, but apparently the dash notation in that example is not, it doesn't actually change the variable. It's a one-shot substitution. Now what exactly that means pragmatically, I have not really experienced yet. But because when I run Slack builds and I want to, I know in my head that you know, I, I know that the, uh, let's say the tag is underscore SBO as, as all the Slack build, um, Slack builds that you create are, are tagged with SBO from slackbuilds.org rather, but maybe I've changed it a significant amount and, and I know that instead of using the default tag, I should really tag this with my own uh, SMI, Slack me slackermedia.info, SMI tag. So maybe if I'm running a Slack build, I'll just tag equals underscore SMI and then name of the, you know, execute the Slack build and, and, and it's off and running. Now, okay, so technically, apparently, that doesn't change the tag value. Actually, that was probably a really bad example, because I think tag literally is only invoked once. Doesn't, doesn't really matter. Point is that that's now my environment variable. So I've, I have set an external variable that my Slack build is referencing upon launch. So I don't really know if, if the fact that the Slack builds use a colon dash actually matters one way or the other. The blog author here, though, is specifically recommending colon equals. So, for instance, dollar sign brace cc colon equals gcc close brace is is a way to set throughout the the through throughout one file and then all other files invoked by that file. So, in for instance, in a series of make files, cc is set to gcc by default. And that, that seems rather significant in a, a complex workflow. So that's colon equals for the default variable settings. Now the blog, the blog article has a lot more tips, and, and some of them I agree with, some of them I didn't really love. I mean, not that they were wrong, because I mean, he gives proof of concept and everything in the blog post. It's a really well-written blog post. Just some of them I'm, I, I, I kind of I looked at and I thought, well, yes, that's possible, but it, it kind of, you know, I think 
I don't know, personally, I think sometimes it's better to do something maybe a different way that maybe, yeah, maybe it's a little bit longer, maybe it's a little bit more complex, but um, it's just the right way. Um, the, the, the easy example that I'm thinking of is where he says that you don't have to use quotes at certain times in variable things. And, like, that's great. That's cool that you don't have to do that. But, I don't know, I, I struggle to get myself to use quotes more often. And so, d I, I don't need encouragement to, like, not use quotes sometimes because, hey, it works. Meh. You know, I'll just, I'll stick with the sort of forcing my way for, for best practices. But another one that he did mention, um, which I, I don't think it's as exciting as the other two that I've just talked about, but it's worth mentioning, I think, because it is, it's it's worth mentioning. So it's, it's uh, in Bash, at least, it's a built-in, uh, I guess, function or whatever they call them, a, a built-in command in Bash. It is eval. So in other words, if you... If you do, if you, if you do a man eval, you on most systems or at least on Slackware, you get the TCL script eval or something like that. It's not that's not the eval that I'm talking about or that he's talking about. It's this shell built-in command called eval, and and you can look at it. You can do like a man bash and then do a search for eval space, for instance, and that uh, yeah that that gets it that gets you there eventually. Uh, and it says, uh, eval, and then the argument. The args are read and concatenated together into a single command. This command is then read and executed by the shell, and its exit status is returned as the value of eval. If there are no args or only null arguments, eval returns zero. So that doesn't really tell you much, but what you can do is... Well, you can try, for instance, so we've got this src source variable, and if you do an eval space dollar sign source you get bash path to foo.c no such file or directory well that's true so basically it kind of if you think about it it kind of exploded that variable admittedly that's not a whole lot different than just typing dollar sign src at your bash prompt but it can be kind of extended into something else so if you need to assign a variable to another variable you can do that with eval so eval space var equals, and then he recommends doing a backslash dollar sign src. I found that that was not actually necessary, but I'm gonna go with him since his point is escaping bashisms and going for pure POSIX, so I'm, I'm gonna assume that he's advising better POSIXness than bash, and that's fine. Well, I'm okay with that. So echo space dollar sign var used to say foo, or whatever it said, it now says slash path to foo.c. So it, it is, the contents of var is now what what were the contents of dollar sign src. And for kicks, I'm going to try that in the tcsh shell that I have open. So I'm going to do set, no, I guess I can't do that. I'm going to have to do eval set e, uh, space var equals, and then I'm going to do that backslash src, and then I'm going to do an echo var. And sure enough, that, that gave me slash path to foo. And I could even, I could do test var equals uh, blah, and then I'll run that same eval command just to make sure that we weren't getting false positives here. Yeah, path to foo.c. So that worked as expected. So that's a really great little blog post. It's really useful. A-P-E-N-W-A-R-R dot C-A slash log slash 20110228. So it's an old post, but it is a, a quite a good post. Like I say, there are a lot more than what I've just covered, but uh, it's the, the ones that I kind of I kind of 
hooked onto are the ones that I've just mentioned. That's everything for this episode, I think. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. of this tag is Boots.